promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. That is the gospel today, that God is faithful to us. Well, that was certainly the case in the audience that was being addressed in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter was writing to some group of people that were scattered by persecution. They were living in different communities uh, and fearing for their lives and experiencing uh, some hardships. And he's writing to them and reminding them that God is faithful And in response to the faithfulness of God, we too can be faithful. And that's been our sermon series over the last few weeks. It's called Different. Just understanding that this world is not our home. We're called to be different. We live in this world, but we're not of it. And Peter's a a great book that helps us think about that calling that we have. And as we live out this calling, friends, that song is, is telling us all that we need to know, that God is faithful and that we can be faithful in the midst of that. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you have the Bible app, uh, this teaching is there in the Bible app. Click on events and that'll, that'll get you there where we're going to be today. But as we, as we jump into 1 Peter 4, let me ask you, what is your perfect day? What does your perfect day look like? It's filled with things that bring you joy. It's filled with things that are life-giving to you. What would your perfect day be filled with? If you could plan it, what would it look like? I didn't plan this day, but it did just work out that way. Uh, actually, it was uh, just last week. I had an off day on Friday. It doesn't always happen, but sometimes it does. And a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to play golf. And so I got up that morning. I played nine holes of golf at my little sanctuary known as the Lynx at Rainbow Curve. It's the greatest nine holes of golf on the face of the planet, if you ask me. I love it. And so... We got to play nine holes of golf with my friend, and then Lauren said, hey, I don't have any appointments today. Do you want to go to lunch? Date with my wife in the middle of the day. You bet. Let's go get something to eat. And so we went and got something to eat, came home, did some chores, and uh, then Luke had a baseball game. And so we loaded up. We went to Luke's baseball game. We won. We won the game. That was amazing. And then some friends wanted to go out, and we went to our favorite pizza place, and we celebrated our win, and we had pizza with friends. And I remember closing the door on that day and getting in bed and going to sleep and just remembering, this day was perfect. It was, it was great. It brought me so much joy. There was joy in so many parts of that day. What does your perfect day look like? Let me say to you today that the joy that I experienced was all based on my circumstances. I mean, who would not be filled with joy? with a day like that. And, and that joy was based on my circumstances, but what Peter is saying, and, and he is echoing all of Scripture, he's saying our joy, this deep-seated experience of contentment and peace, is not anchored in our circumstances, it's anchored in who Jesus is. And because it's anchored in who Jesus is, you can have joy. It's a different kind of joy. The world doesn't know this joy. You can have that no matter what you're going through. Your circumstances do not dictate whether or not you experience this joy. And so let's, let's jump into verse 12. This is chapter 4, 1 Peter. Verse 12, Peter writes this, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you should suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler, troublemaker. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I've said this a few times, and, and it bears repeat, it's worth repeating, but, but throughout this letter, Peter is writing to those who are suffering. They're going through persecution. It came in different waves, and there were ebbs and flows. It depended on who the emperor was at the time, or who the governor of their Roman province would be, or who was leading their city-state, wherever they were scattered and living. And so these people went through, these Christians, they went through persecution at different times, and Peter describes it as a fiery ordeal. This word that he uses for, that we have in our English translations as fiery ordeal, it's connected to this word for crucible. You know what a crucible is? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing in which precious metal is put into this crucible. It's a bowl, it's, and precious metal is put into this crucible, and it's heated to extreme temperatures, and it melts the precious metal, and it begins a refining process in the crucible. And so Peter is saying this fiery ordeal, this persecution, this suffering that you're undergoing, it is as if you are in the crucible of God, and He is refining your faith. He is making you in such a way that you will achieve the ultimate goal of your faith, which is Christ-likeness. Peter reminds him that Christ suffered, and you suffer as well. But hear the good news, Christ was raised. Christ was vindicated by God in response to the suffering he experienced. His obedience resulted in his resurrection. And Peter says, you're going to participate with Christ in his resurrection as well. But it's all happening in this crucible. Sometimes we hear this word test. You know, Peter says this is happening to test you. That's how it comes in our English translations. I think a better translation would be, this is happening to refine you. This is happening to, to make you into the person that God has, has called you to be. God is not some capricious puppet master and he's pulling certain strings and doing certain things just to see what they'll do. Let's test them. Let's just see how they react. No, God has in his sovereignty, in his sovereign love, he has a plan. He has a purpose. And, and he takes the evil of mankind, evil of humanity, what people meant for evil, God in his sovereignty and his power and his love, he uses that to accomplish our salvation. And so God uses that as a crucible to refine and make us into the people that God's called us to be. And so, unlike my perfect day, or unlike your perfect day, there is joy that God gives us that is not dependent upon our circumstances. The Christian's joy, it springs from participation in both the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus. The Christian's joy, it springs from our participation in the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus. Peter uses this word. It's only the second time in the New Testament that it's used, but 
He says, don't be surprised that you should suffer for being a Christian. It happens in the book of Acts, and it's a, it's a pejorative term. It's an insult. They use this term Christian to say those little Christs, those people in Antioch, those people that think they're just like this Jewish carpenter that supposedly was risen from the dead, those Christians. Well, by this point, when Peter's writing, Christians have decided to own it. You bet we're Christians. We're little Christs. We're participating in both the resurrection and the suffering of Jesus. And so we, this, is, this is the whole picture of, of what God is doing. And in that, we find our, our joy. Let me ask you, what fiery ordeals have you experienced in recent days? What crucible have you been in in recent days? I want to say something about what we're talking about today, this crucible, this fiery ordeal, the trials, the suffering that Christians experience. I'm not talking about unexplained tragedies. I'm not talking about sudden deaths. I'm not talking about illnesses. I'm not talking about car accidents. There's a, another sermon for those kinds of things, and it's actually next week. It's 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all of your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. That's good news. Now, I'm not talking about that kind of suffering. What we're talking about is people who are in opposition to the ways of Jesus, and they are intentionally persecuting those who bear the name of Jesus. There was systematic persecution that was going on. It was well documented in the, the first century. And so, American Christians, what fiery ordeal have you been in recently? How has our faith come under attack? Are you paying a price for being a little Christ or a Christian in our culture? And I think it's worth asking, like, do American Christians really know what it's like to suffer like this? Because the world of the New Testament is very foreign to the world that we live in. We live in a world where Christianity is mostly embraced by larger culture. It certainly has a fixed place in American life. It's the dominant religion of people that live in our world. And the New Testament knows of no such world. It did not exist. Followers of Jesus were a small, persecuted minority, and they stood in opposition to lots of large and powerful groups. They stood in opposition to the Roman government. They wouldn't worship Rome's gods. They wouldn't worship the Greek gods. They also stood in opposition to the Jewish establishment. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and that was not embraced by the Jewish establishment. And so the document that we have known as the New Testament, that's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that is useful for our faith and our practice, and from which we get all of our beliefs, it emerges from a community of people that is a persecuted minority. And I think that's going to be really difficult for American Christians to connect with. Do, do American Christians really know what it is to suffer? Well, maybe you've gotten emails like I've gotten. So I got an email not too long ago. It was from some parachurch organization, some nonprofit. And the headline of the email is, American Christians persecuted for their faith. I said, oh, I got to read that. What in the world's going on? And I got another email from an organization, and it said, Christianity under attack in America. Boy, that had my attention. 
I'm going to click on that. I'm going to read that. Well, what's, what's going on? And so I click on it, and I read it, and I read this story about how a nativity scene was taken off a public square. Christianity is under attack. We can't put nativity scenes up in the public square. And then I read this story, how a football coach was not allowed to pray with his team. Christianity is, I mean, we're on the brink. We're going to lose this if we don't have a nativity scene on our public square. I need to click on that email and I need to donate a ton of money to that organization right now or we're going to lose it all. That was the kind of impression I got. Well, hey, I haven't been in the middle of a nativity scene fight and I haven't been in the middle of a fight to get a football coach to pray at a high school football game, but let me tell you how I have been persecuted. So I was teaching a group of fifth and sixth graders not too long ago and we were going through some basic beliefs of the church and they were getting ready to, to move on to different parts of what we do in terms of discipleship for, for young disciples. And Luke came home that day and he had a he had a little certificate that the Spark Cafe had given him for a free ice cream cone. He had done something great at school, and the Spark Cafe had given the school all these certificates to give out. And I know it's only 89 cents for a waffle cone at the Spark Cafe, but still, I was excited. I was going to get a free one. And so I said, you know what? What if these fifth and sixth graders that I'm teaching, what if I gave them a coupon from the Spark Cafe? Because they're doing good things. They're learning about our faith, and I'm going to graduate them on, and Pastor Diane's got something in store for him. So I'm going to just walk down to the Spark Cafe and get some of these coupons. So I walked down there. I ordered a waffle cone with mint chocolate chip. I sat there, and I enjoyed it, as I often do. And then when I got done with my waffle cone, I said, hey, can I see the manager? I'd like to talk to him. And so he came out, and I said, hey, I'm Mark. I'm at the church down the street. Uh, we're practically neighbors here, you know. And uh, I've got some fifth and sixth graders. They're completing this, uh, this thing. And you know those little coupons you give out to the schools? If I could get 30 of those, that would be awesome. And the manager said, uh, so you're a church, right? I said, yeah, yeah, church, just down the street. Yeah, we're like, we're like neighbors. He said, well... We, we really don't do those coupons for churches. I said, what? Like, these kids have worked hard. You don't, you don't do free ice creams for churches? You know, for vacation Bible schools or completing this or that, or maybe we have some kids getting baptized or something. Well, no, we, we, we do it for schools, and we do it for Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and uh, other civic organizations and baseball teams. But, yeah, we just don't do churches. It's kind of... We could kind of get in trouble for that. I looked at him, and I said, does Sam Walton know about this? Because I promise you Sam Walton would give me a free ice cream cone for my fifth and sixth graders. Uh, Sam Walton is dead, sir. I, just kidding. Um, and that, but I did say, man, you know, this would never happen at Chick-fil-A. You know that, right? I came home, I told, I said, Lauren, Christianity is on the brink of extinction in America. Like, I cannot even go to the Spark Cafe and get free ice cream cone for the fifth and sixth graders. We are being persecuted. We are under threats like we have never experienced before. What are we going to do? We're going to become extinct in America. 
I need to find that email. I need to click on it. I need to give a bunch of money. We're being persecuted. She said, really? I'm exaggerating a little bit. But I told her the story. I told her how upset I was about it. She said, you need to get over it. And then she told me some stories about her day. So she works for an organization called Nazarene Compassionate Ministries. And Nazarene Compassionate Ministries works with the Church of the Nazarene in all different parts of the world. And there are Nazarenes who are establishing centers of compassion and medical care and education. They're doing things in countries where you can't have a church. They don't want your church, but they will take your medical care and they will take your school. And so here are Nazarenes establishing schools and medical clinics in places that I can't even tell you today because Lauren wouldn't tell me because she knew I would tell you. And we have to keep it a secret to protect the safety of the people who are doing this. But we call them creative access areas. And these people who are setting up these schools and these clinics, they are under serious attack. We're not talking about we can't put a manger scene up on the square. We're not talking about football coaches that can't pray at games. We're not talking about fifth and sixth grade kids in Bentonville that can't get free ice cream from Walmart. We're talking about people who, if the name of Jesus is spoken in their gathering, they will be hauled off to jail and they will be persecuted. Peter is writing to these people. people be, be, these people who are truly under systematic persecution. And so what I, where we're at today is, is, is some of us remember when you could get free ice cream for your church. And some of us remember when you could have an activity scene on the square. And some of us remember when a football coach could lead his team in prayer before a game. Some of us remember that. And something changed. And now we can't. And so we've taken on this little victim complex. As if, as if suddenly the authentic expression of our faith is under attack. And what I would remind you is, is that our response to this change is important. Our response to this change is important. Because sometimes we, we, we're old enough to remember when things were different, we're old enough to remember when Christianity was woven into the fabric of our civic institutions and our political lives and our economic institutions. It was a, a favored religion in those places, and, and now it's not because we are a democracy. And that's probably good. Separation of church and state is good. You know what happens when you mix religion and politics? You always get politics. And so we're old enough to remember that, and it's creating this sense of disorientation. And so what do we do? Let's fight back. Let's fight back. Let's take the fight to them. Let's get our free ice cream. Let's get our nativity scene on the square. Let's make every football coach an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene. That would be fun. I'd like to be on that ordination board. Let's fight back. Let's hit back. They hit us, let's hit back. And, and here's what I know to be true. That Jesus will never call us to defend our faith in ways that are inconsistent with the example of his life. 
You hear that, church? That Jesus will never call us to defend our faith in ways that are inconsistent with the example of his life. So when did Jesus hit back? When did Jesus hit back? When did Jesus fight back? When did Jesus take the fight to them? What we read is a suffering Messiah. What we read is a Jesus who, when Peter pulls his sword and cuts off the ear of the people that are attacking him, Jesus says, put your sword back in its sheath. No more of this shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me. I'm showing the world a different way to live. I'm showing the world what this kingdom is about. And so Jesus will never call us to defend our faith in ways that are inconsistent with the example of his life. And I'll tell you, church, we've been here before. The people of God have been in this exact moment before. So the image of exile from the Old Testament is so helpful for us. The, 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 the people in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah, they had a, a government where religion was at the center of it. God appointed the king, and the king ruled over the people. And if you read your Old Testament, it didn't really go that well. And so they go into exile. And now here's the people of God living in exile. They're living in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the king. And the Jewish faith is not at the center of political and economic life. The religions of Babylon are there at the center. And there are these three Hebrew exiles. And they're living and working and moving and raising a family in exile. And Nebuchadnezzar puts up a statue in the middle of the town square. And he says, we're going to have a festival. The band's going to play. And when the band plays, everybody gathered there should bow down. They should worship the statue because I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I've done all this. I am like a, I am a God. And if you don't worship me, we're going to throw you into this fiery furnace. Sounds like a terrible way to die. You better bow down. You better worship. The music plays, the people are gathered, they kneel, they worship the statue. But then there are these three Hebrew exiles, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse to participate. They don't fight back, they don't hit back. They just say, this is not who we are. And they refuse to participate, and Nebuchadnezzar does exactly what he said he would do. He, throw, he heats the furnace up, and he, it's hotter than it's ever been, and it kills the soldiers who throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in. And there, before all the people, there's Shadrach, there's Meshach, there's Abednego, and the Bible tells us there was a fourth. Walking in the fire with these three Hebrew exiles who were unharmed. And the message to us, who very well may be living in exile in the American church, is that there is one who walks in the fire with you. Are you going through a fiery ordeal? Are you in the crucible? Is God doing something to refine your faith and to make it more like Jesus? The good news is that when those time comes, when those time come, God will be with you. There will be one walking in the fire with you. But there are those who are in the fire now. I told you a little bit about Lauren's work and what Nazarenes are doing around the world. I'm reminded just a few years ago when there was a power vacuum in the Middle East. A group of terrorists decided to put a government together. They're called ISIS. And portions of Syria, portions of Iraq, they came in and they set up 
a form of government with religion at the center. It's called a caliphate. And they set up this caliphate, and, and everyone in their realm had to be, had to adhere to, I'm not even going to call it Islam because that's not what it was. It was something else. But whatever religion they had come up with, they had made everyone adhere to that. And if you didn't adhere to that, you would be persecuted and killed. And so they went through town and they would mark businesses and they would mark homes with this Arabic symbol. It's noon. It's the Arabic character noon. And it's the first letter of the Arabic word for Nazarene. They went through town and they were saying, here are followers of that Nazarene. Here are followers of that carpenter from Nazareth that thought he was the son of God. They live here and they live here. These are the people you haul off to jail. These are the people you kill. And a group called Voice of the Martyrs, they interviewed an Iraqi pastor who was living in that area during this time. And they, they said, how can we pray for you? You're being persecuted. You're in the fire right now. How can we pray for you? And this is what he said. He said, pray that God will call Christians to stay here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't you understand? They're marking your homes. They're throwing you out of your homes. They're putting you in jail. They're killing you. And what did this Iraqi pastor say? Pray that Christians will stay here. Why? Why would you pray that? He says, many are going to other parts of the world. They're fleeing for safety. But God has given us a mission. I am asking that Christians would feel called to stay and to continue to preach the gospel in this place. American church. We can learn something. We can learn something from this kind of commitment to the gospel. Peter says something about what happens. Verse 14, he said, If you're insulted, if you're persecuted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When you experience this trial, this fiery ordeal, this crucible, the spirit of God rests on you. This is language res resembling Isaiah 11. Verse 2, which is a messianic prophecy that foretells the coming of Jesus. And this, this prophecy says the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Messiah. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What is Peter saying? It's that when we're persecuted, when we're in the fire, there will be another with us. The fourth will walk with us in the fire. The Spirit will not leave us and not forsake us. And so there's a pastor in Iraq who has endured persecution and suffering, and this pastor has much to teach us. For they have experienced something that we have not. I've been deprived of free ice cream. But oh, our friends, our sisters, and our brothers living in other parts of the world are experiencing the crucible. They're experiencing the testing of their, their faith, and they have much to teach us. The Spirit rests upon them. And so, rather than use an unchristian means to accomplish a Christian agenda, the people of God need to be reminded there's another in the fire with us, and His presence makes all the difference. We will be called to live in a very unique way. We will be called to live in a way that's contrary to the ways of this world. 
But that is how the kingdom of God comes. The kingdom of God comes when the people of God live out the unique ways of Jesus in the world. And and thank God no one's going to go to your house tonight and mark your home with a symbol that marks you as a Christian. But make no mistake about it, in the spaces that you inhabit, in the places that you work, in the businesses that you manage, people should know that you are different. People should know that you are a follower of Jesus. They should see you living in a unique way. We're called to to embody this way of Jesus. We're called to love like no other. We're called to practice hospitality like no one else practices hospitality. We're called to live with open arms. We're called to embrace the hurting. We're called to not forget the people the world has forgotten about. We're called to get messy in this way of the kingdom. And Peter says, if you live this way, this way that is in opposition to the world, don't be surprised if you end up paying a price. Because friends, know this, that Jesus wasn't crucified for benign platitudes about God. Jesus wasn't crucified for, you know, standing in the middle and saying, hey, you know, there's, there's, let's, just, let's just work it all out. Can't we all be friends? Like Jesus was crucified. People wanted to kill Jesus because he said to Roman authorities, this kingdom will not last. I'm part of a kingdom that's going to last forever. He said to Pharisees who held all the power, you're missing, you're missing everything God wants to do. He said to zealots that wanted to overthrow the government, this is not how we go about it. He said to Sadducees who were in bed with the government, this is not who God has called you to be. He, he, he challenged systems and structures of injustice, and this is why they crucified him. This is why he suffered And the writer of Hebrews said this about the suffering of Jesus as he lived this unique way in the world. Hebrews 12, verses 2 through 3. He says, For the joy set before him. All this suffering that Jesus endured, there was a joy. There was a joy that wasn't based on his circumstances. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus saw the big picture. He saw what, was God, what God was doing. And he said, I will stand in the middle of this. I will take the beating. I will take the persecution. I will take the suffering. I will endure the cross and entrust my life to the Creator because I know God is ultimately doing something bigger, doing something better. He is accomplishing His divine purposes through my life. And that's that brought him joy, and it should bring us joy as well. To say that, that whatever crucible I may go through, whatever adversity I may experience because of my faith, I know it's accomplishing something for the kingdom of God. And so here we are, American Christians. We don't know what it's like to have our homes marked, We don't know what it's like to be thrown out of our businesses for our faith. We're not experiencing persecution that other people are experiencing in the world. But we do do live in a world whose values and way of life is so different from our own. There's a very unique way of life that God has called us to. And what Peter reminds us is that this world is not our home. 
And so who are we called to be in these spaces? We're part of the Wesleyan theological tradition, and so we trace our roots to this pastor in England in the 1700s. His name is John Wesley. And as they look at Wesley's engagement with culture, they said, you know, Wesley really ordered that by three simple rules. And a Methodist pastor named Reuben Job, he wrote a book called Three Simple Rules, where he explained these. And I want to share them with you, but here's the preface to the book. Three simple rules for life. And in the preface of the book, Job writes this. We live in such a fast-paced, frenzied, and complex world that it's easy to believe we are all trapped into being someone who do not wish to be and, and being someone we do not wish to be and living a life we do not desire to live. We long for some way to cut through the complexities and turbulence of everyday life. We search for a way to overcome the divisiveness that separates, disparages, disrespects, diminishes, and leaves us wounded and incomplete. We know deep within the path we are on is not healthy or morally right and that it cannot lead to a positive ending. We fear there is no way out. Job wrote of divisiveness in 2007. If I could go back and talk to him in 2007, I would say, Brother, you have no idea. You, ha you only think it's divisive now. Just wait till everyone has a social media account. Just wait. Now, we're going to take divisiveness to a whole new level. Just wait. And so here's Christians in this world that's divided and there's so much hate and and, and, and we, we feel this anxiety because so much of the way the world is going is contrary to our values and who God has called us to be. And so we're, we're trying to figure out what does engagement look like, and, and we know we can't. We, it's just. And Job says, let's go back to Wesley's three simple rules. As you think about your posture in this, in this world. Rule number one, Wesley says, do no harm. Do no harm as you think about who God is calling you to be. As you think about things in your world that are contrary to your values and, and who, what you want for your family and your business and your life. And what Wesley says, do no harm. I have a friend. He's a pastor in town. He's from a different theological tradition. He thinks about things very differently than I do. And he's very vocal about some things that I just disagree with. It's outside of, of my tradition and it's outside of, of, of what my church has said is good faith and practice. And so he's this huge advocate for all of these things. And I've often thought, I need to confront him. I need to stop what's happening. I need to think about my response to this. And what I heard the Lord saying was, Mark, are you omniscient? Do you know all things? Do you have a full perspective of the kind of ministry he's doing, the things he's thinking about, the people he's wanting to reach? Are you omniscient? No, God, I'm not omniscient. I'm not all-knowing. I don't have full perspective. And so God says, in this situation, remember, do no harm. Do no harm. 
So Wesley's second rule, like the first, is very simple. But friends, do good. Do good. There's, there are some things where we have to look at it and we have to say, I'm going to do no harm in that situation. But in this situation, I'm going to do good. One of my favorite civil rights leaders in the middle of the civil rights movement said, I will partner with anyone to do good and no one to do evil. And so my friend I just told you about, on one issue I'm completely not aligned, can't see eye to eye on that, but he's doing some other things and he's asked me to be a part of it, and they're good things. They're good things. It's welcoming the stranger. It's practicing hospitality. It's good stuff. And I've said, absolutely. Our church will be in partnership with you. I appreciate what you're doing in that space. And so it's possible to be in partnership with people that you don't fully agree with. Because we've taken this posture of saying, I'm going to do no harm. And when I can, I'm going to do good. And then what's going to anchor us in this? Wesley's third rule was stay in love with God. Man, in the midst of all this, it's crazy, it's divisive, it's confusing, it brings you anxiety. You don't have all the answers, but stay in love with God. Stay anchored in the Scripture. Keep the vision of who God is calling us to be front and center. Stay in love with God. Because we sang it earlier, God is faithful. God is faithful. He is going to see us through. So the invitation today is to entrust one's life to the Father, to entrust one's life to His faithfulness. I'm going to ask the worship team to come, and they're going to close us tonight, this morning. But, but would you stand? And can I pray for us today? People of God, I want to pray for you as you go out into a world that is not your home. And yet, God has a mission for you. God has a purpose for you in the situations that you're in, in the relationships that you have. And I want to ask that God would go before you. He would strengthen you. That he would give you a different kind of joy. A joy that's not dependent upon your circumstances, but one that is anchored in both the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus.